0: Welcome to In Her Shoes. I'm Stella Bugbee, editor-at-large for New York Magazine. On this podcast, we talk to ambitious women about how they've come this far and where they're going next. And on this episode, we're speaking to Tamron Hall. Tamron is a force. If you've ever seen her on TV, you know she radiates this warm intelligence and curiosity about the world. She's also very stylish. She's been on television for decades, CNBC, NBC, NBC, the Discovery Channel, and many, many more, eventually finding her way to the Today Show as the first black woman to host it. Now she's the executive producer of her own talk show in her second season. If something is worth tackling, Tamron is talking about it. I've been a fan of hers for years, but recently I saw the interview she did with a politician named Andrew Gillum, and it made me want to talk to her more about her work. Gillum was the mayor of Tallahassee, and at the age of 41, he was considered by many to be a promising Democrat with national potential, until he was found unconscious, naked in a hotel room in what seemed to be a compromising sex scandal. It's the kind of story that broke many people's hearts, most of all his and his family's. Tamron's interview with Gillum and his wife a few months after the scandal was so sensitive and real, so thoughtful and nuanced it made me reconsider the role of journalists in moments like these for people in the public eye. Anyway, if you haven't seen it, google it. But in the meantime, here's Tamron. I actually just wanted to start off by asking you about boxing, because I know (laughs) that you box.
1: Uh, You know what? It's interesting. Uh, I have not had an opportunity to get back into the gym, as you well know, um, due to the pandemic. And I feel a tad bit out of sorts. I turned 50 a few, I guess it's now two months um, since I turned 50. And I can't wait. That is something that I miss because it is such a metaphor for my life, not just my Professional life, but my personal life, and I miss it. What do you mean? It's a metaphor for for your personal life. Do you Uh, like hitting things? No, (laughs) quite the contrary. (laughs) I'm used to being bet against. You know, quite Uh the contrary. When you get in the ring, someone is always um, the underdog. Uh, You know, there can only be one winner when you get in a ring or get out of the ring. At the end of the day, you start to read and see things that paint someone like you as being the underdog. And does that stuff come out for you when you're boxing? Uh, it doesn't come out. I'm not, I mean, it's not a therapy session, but when you are boxing, your focus has to be on each move and life is so it's a less, life is less about punching and more about the pivot. Mm -hmm. And in boxing, I know that people think the strongest or the person with the mightiest punch leaves the ring the winner, but it's not. It's often the counterpunch. It's the pivot. It's the turn. It's knowing when to duck. It's when to stick and move. And that's so much of life for me, knowing when it's time to move and knowing when it's time and the space is open for you to stick it.
0: Oh, I love that. That is a metaphor. That's great. I wasn't expecting like an actual metaphor.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That That was genius.
0: (laughs) You're in your second season. Mm -hmm. And it's a Thursday. Does that mean that you just shot and filmed two episodes?
1: Two shows and I just filmed an acceptance speech for an award that I have uh, received that I'm so honored to be the recipient of the Black Women in Media, Media Person of the Year Award. So I taped that virtual acceptance speech. That's all something new for all of us. And I just got into my home and ran in and opened an Amazon box of new toys for my 18 month old. We're trying to keep him stimulated in this very isolated world. Um, That is now his existence. I opened up a hedgehog that encourages you. It's a sensory (laughs) hedgehog game and a tambourine, which he is now downstairs learning shake, shake, shake songs. And now I'm upstairs talking to you.
0: Tell me what you learned from your first season of doing the show and what big lessons you're taking into the second season from that.
1: Oh, wow. Um, When I first pitched the show, I went in with the idea of having a show where you could have a conversation about any and everything. That's how I grew up. I grew up in a very um, open household where there was no question that was off limits. So for me, when I launched the show, I said, okay, let's talk about it. There should be nothing off limits. We should be able to have a conversation each and every day. What I underestimated was the amount of time that had passed between the last traditional talk shows and the fun variety daytime shows that we all love. So I think that's the biggest lesson that I've learned is again, going back to you asking me about boxing, you cannot give in to the voices who are unconvinced, you know? And I think that's what I've learned this second season to lean in on my instincts, to lean in on my pivot, to lean in on 50 years of being a woman and watching a lot of TV.
0: When you say, that's really interesting, don't give up, don't give in, rather, to the voices who, how did you phrase it? Don't give in to the voices who don't get it?
1: The intention is that, you know, listen, getting into syndicated TV, the, one of the first things you're given, I should say, is the list of people who did not last past the first season. And then you're given the list of the people who did not get past the second season. So the entire design of it is to discourage you. You know, no one really said, yes, this will work.
0: Why, why would they try to discourage the people involved?
1: I think it's because so many shows have failed with huge names, with huge budgets. and finding that secret sauce finding that right mix has been elusive for some time by no means did we reinvent the wheel here i just followed the template from people that i've admired my entire career mike douglas dinah shore of course oprah winfrey our show happens to re-air on the own network can you imagine how that felt for me to get the green light that the show would re-air on the oprah winfrey network but also Phil Donahue, all of these shows that I've watched and grown up with both professionally and personally added to my confidence that we are capable of having conversations every day with each other. Going back to just recently, the non-binary show we did. I had people who were members or are members of the LGBTQ plus community say to me, that they don't fully understand the non-binary journey. People of a certain age, over 50, I have a couple of friends who are over 50 who always thought, you know what, I'm gay and that's where it ends. And they said, you know, these kids, and I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, you're LGBTQ plus and you are admitting to me that you don't quite understand? Wow, there are days where I have to take a step back and pause and fully absorb what this journey means for someone else. I gave the example of the anniversary of Stonewall. I was giving a speech and I said something to the crowd along the lines of, we are all brothers and sisters. And I paused and looked out at the crowd and I felt like a, a relic at 50. <laughs> Wait a minute, Tamron, you got to catch up. You know, that's what you said 15 years ago. That's not what you say today, because at the end of the day, you are you are not being as inclusive as you might think you are with that one statement.
0: When you were giving that speech and you realized that in the middle of it, did you react?
1: My body reacted. I went into a full panic. My heart started to race. And I was horrified that here I am. I have the honor of being on the stage at this phenomenal event. And I've had this slip up. I've had this moment where I wasn't as cool and as aware as I believe I am. My intention was not to, of course, um, not recognize the non-binary community. It was just out of habit, out of Mm -hmm. sincere habit of saying we're brothers and sisters. And in that moment, I realized that that's not what you say. And here I am, a journalist, someone with a diverse background, someone with a friend circle that is extremely diverse, And I slipped up and I thought, okay, let me use my show to educate people, but also admit that that slip up did not mean that I wasn't aware or sympathetic or understanding or an ally. And that's something that we try to tackle in our show, just as we did with the conversation of women of color and white women. These, you know, memes about Karens or the trope about angry black women. I really wanna
0: ask you about the Andrew Gillum interview, which you kicked off your second season with. We're getting our first look at evidence from the overdose emergency involving former gubernatorial
1: candidate, Andrew Gillum.
0: And we're talking about a very messy hotel room with drugs scattered everywhere. Local 10 news reporter. Can you tell me a little bit about, you know, how you got that interview to happen, how you mustered up the courage to ask really difficult questions of a person who is in a really vulnerable state there's one point at which he's crying and he's off camera and um you you say he's crying off camera so really take us through that interview a little bit for for anyone who hasn't seen it
1: well first thank you for that compliment i i really appreciate um that you recognize how difficult of an interview that is for a journalist especially in a show that is an entertainment show. The minute I saw his post on social media, I knew I would be the right person for them to share their story with. What did that post say that made you think that? It wasn't what he said. It was what was not there, his wife. He referenced her, but she wasn't in the picture. And I felt that the story or the complete picture had to include her. And I assumed that many people were going after him and wanted to hear his part of the story. And I felt that after a steady diet, 25, 30 years of journalism, where the woman was always the also ran, I wanted to approach it very different.
0: And do you think that you approaching it that way enabled you to get the interview and her trust?
1: I do. I think, and I thought at the time, getting her trust was very important, as he seemed ready to speak based on his social media post, something she had not done.
0: What about that interview
1: surprised you the most? Everything. (laughs) Uh, And I don't say that lightly. I was stunned by their openness when they revealed that from Really, day one, they had what she referred to as a covenant in their relationship that others were unaware of. I, I was floored. You and I both know that there were people on social media and in the rumor circle that assumed she was this wife who had no idea and you know, nothing. You know, she's blindsided. You know, She's in a corner wondering, how did this all happen? When in fact, prior to their marriage, as they revealed in the interview, Andrew shared with her that he is bisexual.
0: That was a really remarkable part of the interview, I have to say. I, I, I was stunned by that part. And then I'm wondering, you know, you spoke about kind of bringing unlikely people together or tackling subjects that are uncomfortable, let's say, friendships between white women and Black women, or or this bisexual marriage that nobody knew about, this very publicized political marriage, do you feel any sort of responsibility as a host and as a journalist to heal or to bring people together? Is
1: that part of your mission? No, because that's a mission I would fail at. I'm on a daily basis trying to heal myself. I I have a tumultuous relationship with my biological father that I've never spoken about. I have siblings I've never met. I'm a work in progress like anyone else. I don't say that to make me relatable. You know, I'm not that host that is prepared to reveal every painful experience that I've encountered to help someone else. That's not my center. That's not my focus. Uh, I simply and honestly would like to provide people a platform and a place to share their story.
0: Do you think of yourself as someone who asks questions that other people are afraid to ask?
1: Yes, I do. Matthew McConaughey came on last week. He's written a phenomenal memoir. At the beginning of the book, he lists all of these different things that happened to him, two of which were very horrifying, uh, being sexually molested at the age of 18, knocked unconscious in the back of a van. The other was what he referred to as being uh, bribed into a sexual situation at the age of 15. The rest of the memoir, he never references it again. In my interview with him, I said, I'm curious, why didn't you go into more details? Yeah, good question. Um, ultimately, you know, as a journalist, when someone says, that's a good question, you know, you're always taken aback. Wow, I ask a good question here, and so I wasn't afraid to ask the question, and I believe he saw that, which is why he answered honestly.
0: Mm-hmm. You're very forthcoming about your life, like whether that's on Instagram or oh, many I'm not. Of the interviews. No, no, no. Well, no, no. right. So I'm it not. seems like you. It <laughs> no. seems sometimes no. it seems like you are, but I've no. also heard you say that people mistake privacy for secrecy. Mm-hmm. And you didn't share your pregnancy, for example, for 32 weeks. So you have an interesting relationship to, you know, revealing yourself and keeping yourself a private individual. Uh, how do you navigate those two things? Because I think you, you're constantly toggling between those two, as far as I can tell.
1: You're absolutely right. I, 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 I'm torn every time I post a picture of my son I know that people are excited to see him. And, and like any mom, he, he you know, does a little shimmy through a pumpkin patch. I put it on social media. Because you want to share your joy. But I also know um, you know, the feeling of posting a picture of my son and someone in the comment section saying, why is his eye you know, so close in, does he have Down syndrome? That happened. And it wasn't hurtful because if he were diagnosed with anything, he's still mine. If he you know, has anything that is a challenge before him, that's okay. Mama and Papa are going to work it out. He doesn't have, uh, or has not been diagnosed with anything like that, but that another human being would write that on his photo of just a Christmas picture was jarring. And that's why I um, I have one foot in and one foot out. I'm from Texas. I don't have that type of personality. I- I'm more inclined to want to find where you live versus <laughs> delete your comment. So I choose not to <laughs> put too much out there. Or the ruling Texas girl you know, comes out and all I can think about for the rest of the night as my husband is trying to cool me down is who are they and how do I get to their house?
0: Social media has opened up this whole realm for people to tell their own story. For example, when you left the Today Show under what seems like acrimonious you know, terms, were you able to turn to that to reaffirm your relationship with your fans and your narrative?
1: Absolutely. Listen, I like you, we've seen women, especially come and go in this business, women of a certain age, certainly. And, you know, 10 years prior, 15 years prior, I would have been the person that you ran into at a store and maybe asked me or wondered to yourself, whatever happened to Tamron Hall? Oh, there she is. Oh, or someone might say, oh, I saw her at, you know, a festival oh she looked great or oh yeah she's married now your life would become the oh whatever happened to her and there were many women and are many women in this business that i greatly admire who were let go replaced and or or let go or replaced and did not rebound in this business i never said goodbye to the audience i was the first black woman to ever host the today show um in the 62 Year history and I wasn't able to say goodbye. I woke up the next morning very cloudy, very uncertain, and it was the power of my own social media that enabled me to connect with the audience, to say my goodbye, and to say what I was doing next. And people followed the journey my social media following actually increased more rapidly off air than it had while I was on air, which I found so intriguing.
0: What did you take that to mean? That Were you liberated to be a more honest version of yourself once you were off the Today Show?
1: It wasn't liberation. or li- I didn't feel liberated. I felt that there was some part of that journey people related to, whether it was being demoted, being moved from a job, being 47 and wondering what's next. There was some part of it that opened the door to a relationship that I always felt existed. At one point in time, I was doing four, what was it, seven shows on four different networks. There were days that I was on the nine o'clock hour of the Today Show. I ran over to do MSNBC 45 minutes later. And my show on Discovery ID was airing at the same time. So out west, the Today Show would be on. I would be live on MSNBC. And there inevitably be a, um, a deadline crime marathon on investigation discovery. Three networks, one person. And I said to myself, how do I take all of this and build one show with these different relationships that I've had with people from being you know, a reporter to an anchor, all of this. And social media and the following and the reaction that I was reading was the, the confirmation, I guess is the best way to put it, the confirmation that I was looking for that I maybe didn't even realize I was looking for.
0: When you went to staff your own show, you know, I noticed you you went out of your way to make sure that representation was important in the staffing in terms of who you hired. You know, why is that stuff important?
1: I think it's obvious. I mean, you are a white woman in the business. You know how it feels to walk into a room with all men. Imagine what it feels like to be a Black woman and walk into a room with all white women. This isn't new to any of us. We all know it. And we all know why it's important. The best of any journey is when we can include more people. So when I started to staff the show, I really wanted that staff to reflect my friend circle.
0: What kind of conversations do you guys have on the staff that reflect this coming together of different perspectives? Can you give me an example?
1: Absolutely. Oh my gosh, motherhood, womanhood, mom guilt. We're doing a big show coming up on what is, what is womanhood? You know, I remember when I had Moses, a friend said to me, welcome to the club. And I kind of, you know, pushed back and I said, I don't want to be in a club. Now I'm in. My womanhood is not defined by my motherhood. They're two very separate things. I'm independent. I've, you know, paid my own rent. I've made my own way. I am a woman, I'm a grown woman, as Beyonce says. And so for me, um, it was and is important that we have these real conversations, which is why for over an hour and a half, my staff, which is over 40% women, the creative staff, maybe even more than that, maybe 60%, we had a very raw and real behind the scenes conversation about womanhood and what does that really mean? I heard someone the other day say, something along the lines of, she's a career woman. That was so jarring that in the year 2020, uh, someone said career woman. But then I thought back to my faux pas at the Stonewall anniversary, and I said brotherhood, sisterhood. That remark about career women wasn't meant to demean. It's just a reminder of how we are all very much a part of what we've been fed a steady diet of for so long. Some of those things are good, and some of those things are bad, and some of those things are evolving.
0: So when you are you know, with your staff and something like that comes up, as a manager, how do you address that? Do you bring it to that person individually, or do you raise it as a group question?
1: You know, So far, we haven't had anything like that happen. But I believe if it did, we have a very communal energy. And I think with our environment, because I have worked in, you know, places, particularly at the network level, where you are a part of a machine. We operate our show as best we can as a family. I mean, it, it's so, you know, I think you're right. You, you use the word liberating. And I, I said it wasn't that. That is exactly what it is. It's liberating, (laughs) you know. I, 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 you know, and I'm sorry I said it wasn't. It is. It absolutely is. And maybe I'm, I'm fully. I'm. You're like a therapist to me now. I'm working it out in my head. Well, let's talk a little bit
0: about um, beauty and fashion. Yeah. Because and I've seen
1: your closet, so I'm envious.
0: I saw an article. (laughs) I wish you could see the closet I'm sitting in right now. You would not be envious.
1: (laughs) The kitchen thing. The kitchen thing was awesome.
0: I think. That you are one of the more vibrantly dressed, let's just say. Um, you take more risks on TV. You have clearly a lot more interest in high fashion. When you make a hair change, for example, not wearing your hair blown out, it's like national news. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and, you know, tell me like when you accepted your Emmy on Instagram your hair was not blown out. And I could tell that you were quite self-conscious about it. Is that because of the criticism that you receive in moments like
1: that? No, it's because I'd had like a glass of wine and my mascara was running. And I just put my <laughs> child, to like, I wasn't, I was, I was in a robe. That was why I was so self-conscious. And like, I think most women who you know are on television or who are presented a certain way every day, I was more like vulnerable because of that. I truly had had, I think I was either on my way to have a second glass or maybe a third. I was about to take a shower. I just put my son to sleep and I was more insecure. And I'll use the word insecure because you're in my bedroom. But my hair, (laughs) you know, I kind of got over that a while ago. I don't think I'm more vibrantly dressed. I think Kelly Ripa is hands down the most stylish woman on television.
0: Do you have a go-to power outfit or, like, a favorite, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez wears her red lipstick when she needs to go to Congress and feel powerful? What's your version of the red lipstick?
1: My version of the red lipstick is um, the color yellow, or, which I wore on my season two premiere, white, the color white for me, and... I think it would be the color purple. I have three colors that I, when I'm feeling, when I feel the need to have that extra exterior reinforcement is what I call it. Those are the three colors I go to.
0: When you were growing up in Luling, that's a a small town where you always glamorous did you have that self-concept even as a child
1: <laughs> of course not are you kidding me i wore braces for seven years my nickname was chicken legs uh i had poofy frizzy unmanageable hair that my mother wouldn't let me get a relaxer on until i was about 15 no i was i, I and i was not a cute kid my parents thought so but i don't think anyone else did <laughs> i was gangly and awkward so what caused you to
0: find that in yourself
1: i don't have any idea that's i i i think you grow and you evolve and you learn your strengths both exterior and interior i think that externally and internally i should say um no i don't know i i think cutting my hair short was um, both empowering, but also, I believe, a part of my beauty identity. I have had people many times write me or ask me why not grow my hair out, or I'd be much prettier if my hair were longer. I just did a homage to Diana Ross, and you know, so many people, why don't you grow your hair out? Why? I cut my hair when I was eighteen. My boyfriend at the time. Had a crush on the singer Anita Baker and I wanted to get as close to his crush as possible because I think I liked him a lot more than he liked me. And it was the best decision I've ever made for a man in my life. <laughs> <laughs> because the relationship ended but I got a signature haircut out of it. Um, but I think my my identity is more for me in my hair than my clothing, but it's not whether it's natural or straight. It's more the pushback I think that I've received because it is so short.
0: In my limited experience, uh, you're really good at being on TV. And I say that as someone who is very, very bad at being on TV. (laughs) Um, One time I, I had a media consultant tell me that the key to being on TV is to imagine yourself as the best clown at the circus. And every time I have to go on TV, I think of that. But you do not have that presence on TV. So many newscasters, by the way, I think do have that. And when I, once you told me that, I started to see the entire newscasting um, experience through a totally different lens. But when I watch you, I really don't have that feeling Is there something you do or tap into um, to psych yourself up, or to be more authentic on air, or is that just come naturally to you?
1: You know what I, I think it comes naturally to me. Every time I've tried to be someone or something else, I feel phony. Even you know there, you know someone will write a script with or five puns. And I'm like, I'm not reading that. <laughs> I'm not going to read that. And I, I think it comes from knowing that my, I'm 50. So there are a lot of people who know me. That's a lot of years of friends that I've gathered, a lot of family members watching. And I, I think fear ending a show and having my mother or my aunt call me and say, are you kidding me? That's B.S. or that's not you. And And that is (laughs) you you do not want, you know, two southern women on a phone call as soon as you get off air saying we um, we're going to call a family meeting because that person is not who we raised. That's not you.
0: Who is someone that makes you nervous? You've interviewed everybody. You've interviewed Barack Obama. You've interviewed like everybody
1: in the world. Who makes you nervous? Celebrities don't make me nervous. People are so-called real people do. Because they are not always equipped or prepared for the reaction to their story. And I know that a question that's presented in an awkward way for me or a reaction from me or a question that I forget to ask or I don't ask can have a great impact on their life. And I hold that very near and dear to my heart. They are, I am their connection to the viewer. So I get more nervous because I want to take care of them. I want, you know, especially if it's someone who's sharing something traumatic or something difficult, I want to take care of them. I don't want to cross any lines. I'm not a therapist. I'm not there to fix someone's life and all of these other things. But I do get nervous when there's someone who doesn't have media training or there's someone who um, is sharing the most difficult part of their journey with me and the audience. That's a tough one because I've seen it backfire. I've seen people go into interviews thinking, I'll tell my story and they leave vilified or they leave regretting the interview. Going back to, even though they are celebrities or people who live their life in public eye, I should say, the Gillums. One of the things I said to them is, I hope this is an interview that when your children are in their 20s or 30s, you can air and show them and explain to them what happened. Do you think you achieved that with that interview? I think I did. Have you talked to them since then? I haven't. I sent them a thank you card, which is what I try to do with all of our guests. Um, that's something I believe I learned a lot from Oprah, but I learned from Stedman Graham, who in my early years in the 90s was a guest on a local show that I did. And he wrote a personal thank you card. And I thought, I will write handwritten thank you cards. Now, granted, I didn't know that we'd have Evites and all of these other things now that was in 1990, but I try to keep my promise to write uh, as many handwritten thank you letters to the people who live their life in the public. Spotlight and those who don't. They all have one thing in common. They've come on our show, but I have not spoken with them, but I hope that you know when their sons and daughter are, you know, in their 20s and they Google or whatever the technology is at that time and they're curious about their father's journey they stumble upon my interview, and they see someone who was fair.
0: Mm-hmm. I really think they will.
1: I know that after your first, was it after your
0: first season, you called Oprah for some advice. Can you give us any detail on what that advice was?
1: Not if I want to live, no.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, now I really want to know what it was. In Her Shoes is edited and produced by Brandon McFarland. Our lead producer is B.A. Parker. Nishat Kerwa and I are the show's executive producers. The Cut is made possible by the excellent team at New York Magazine. Subscribe today to support their work at thecut.com slash subscribe. I'm Stella Bugby. Thanks for listening.